from Psalm 95 this morning. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Come to you and declare these truths that you are the miracle worker and that you are the promise keeper who provides hope, who provides love and grace and mercy in our deepest times of need. And God, this morning we pray that what we've just sung would remind our hearts and our minds the need to worship you regularly, to bring you praise. God, that you would form in our hearts a desire to be brought low, to lift you high. That you would form in our lives a desire to make much of you. And so, God, we worship you and we declare these truths to you and about you for others to hear. And this morning, as we open up your word, God, we pray that your spirit would form our hearts, would convict us of sin, and would change our lives to bring you worship. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. As you take your seats, you can see that I am not Ronnie. I am not Morgan. I am not a whole host of other folks. My name is David Neese. It is an honor to be here this morning. Um, I know several of you. Some of you I do not know. Uh, I am a member of this church. My wife and our two girls have been a member of this church for the last eight years. Uh, I serve college students at Coastal Carolina University through a ministry that this church supports called Baptist Collegiate Ministries. been doing that here for nine years, investing in the lives of college students all along the Grand Strand. Uh, and so it is an honor to be here this morning. Uh, college students are moving in. In fact, we had some families here last service uh, as they were dropping their students off. Um, students are moving in all across the state. Some classes have already started. Uh, folks from this church actually came to campus this week and prayed over our campus as well. And so I would just encourage you over the next several days, uh, our classes start on Wednesday, that you'd be praying that God would intersect the life of college students um, maybe showing up to the college campus looking for a whole host of other things, but that they would find Jesus and he would change their lives. Uh, and so I would ask you, you would pray alongside with us uh, for that. As we jump into the word this morning, we will continue in the book study of Psalms. And I, I want to start with a quote uh, that just kind of has never left my, uh, my mind as I prepared this week. In fact, um, I was sitting talking to my wife last night and I was like, I don't know how to start 
the sermon. And she was like, well, just tell some beautiful antidote about your wife. And I was like, okay, we'll go with that. Uh, and then this morning she asked, and I was like, I'm going with the quote that I just couldn't get out of my head. And she was a little disappointed, but it is what it is. Here's the quote. The quote goes like this. Uh, it is, I, I, and let me just tell you the first time I heard it. I was walking to a parking lot my junior year of high school. I was dating this girl. She was a senior. She drove to school. We got into the Mitsubishi Galant that she was driving. Me in the passenger seat. She puts in this little round thing into the CD player. Uh, CDs, some of you guys don't know what those are, but they go into, they went into the car. And all of a sudden there's this crackling noise came on and it was a quote and is this the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is by Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable and then there was a little pause and then a song came on by DC talk called what if I stumble what if I fall And in that moment, I had only been a Christian for a little bit of time when I first heard the song. And it was this idea of like pursuing Jesus and walking with him. But as I kind of thought through the quote and over the years, that quote has stuck with me and thought through different things of what does it mean? What does it mean when he's saying what he's saying? The the quote is from an author named Brennan Manning. Some of you guys have read his works, maybe by the Ragamuffin Gospel or a book called Abba. I don't think that, that Brennan Manning is saying if you go find an atheist and ask that atheist, why he's an atheist, he's not saying, well, that Christian over there doesn't live like Jesus. I don't think that's what he's saying. In fact, if you were to go to an atheist, they would probably give you some other reasons, maybe evidential reasons or things that they don't believe. I don't think he's saying that. I also don't think he's saying to Christians, hey, do better, try harder. The reason I don't think he's simply saying that is because in his works, he specifically talks about our need for grace and our need for mercy because we can't perform to God's standard. But what I, what I do think he's saying is, if you claim to follow Jesus, and yet your life is inconsistent with that, why would I believe in that? And so what he's saying is that we have Christians who maybe come in these doors, who claim they believe, give lip service to God, maybe through music or through other things, and walk out the door, and they live an unbelieving lifestyle, In a world that doesn't believe, they look at that and say, that's unbelievable. And and the quote this morning hits me in two ways. One, I think it's a, a warning for us as followers of Christ that the life we live among others can breed unbelief. But then I would also say this, that our unbelief breeds further unbelief in our lives. And so we need to pay attention. And I think the psalmist actually speaks to that this morning in the psalm that was just read and really lifts up this idea that belief is beautiful, and unbelief is catastrophic. And so this morning you have two options. You can believe the word of God and act accordingly, and it's beautiful, or you're warned against catastrophe. And the psalmist kind of gets into that. And over the course of the studying the book of Psalms, we've seen psalms about praise and thanksgiving and lament. And today's a hymn psalm, a kind of a royal psalm, also a prophetic psalm that points us in all these same direction, pointing to who Jesus is. And what we'll see is a clear call to worship and then a warning, a disastrous warning if we don't follow. Now, as I was kind of preparing, uh, to, I've known this for about a month, like, 
there's a thousand different ways to kind of break down a psalm. A psalm is like poetry. If you think about getting a love letter from somebody you were dating or hopefully still dating or whatever in your life, and you got this letter and you're kind of like trying to break it down, sometimes things just don't always make sense where things go, if you guys kind of understand what I'm saying. Like sometimes the psalms are like that. And so I, I was kidding with Morgan earlier, like I had like six different outlines for this psalm. And so when, uh, when Kyle texted me, he's like, hey, I need the outline for the worship guide. I was like, Let's go with the simple one, all right? And so today on the back of your worship guide, there's a simple outline. I'm going to stick to that outline, but know that this is poetry, and it could be written different ways. But I think this encapsulates what the psalmist is saying to us this morning. Most psalms kind of take us into some emotional uh, thoughts and things and then and bring us and lifts up the soul. And oftentimes, if it mentions something negative or something that we should be warned about, it kind of brings us back to some positive things. This psalm does not do that. So just a fair warning as we get out of the gate, this psalm leaves us on a stern warning note. It takes us to the pinnacle of truth and then drops us down with a stern warning and leaves us wrestling with the emotions of what if in our life. Now, before we jump in, I want to briefly deal with this idea of worship because worship is kind of, I feel like what this psalm is really thrusting about. The idea of worship is defined all over Scripture in different places. Uh, we see in Romans, Paul writes about worship as the living your life as a living sacrifice, and this is your spiritual act of worship. And we see other places where pursuing the will of God and different things talks about worship. Worship here is specifically defined uh, in the psalm a couple ways. One is this idea of the actual Hebrew word means to bow down, but as we're bowing down, we're lifting up praise. So you think about this actual positional body of bowing down, but we're lifting up because we're bowing down to someone greater. And this is what the psalmist gets at. And in fact, in the Psalms, what we see too is that it's mostly a corporate idea. In fact, you'll see the plurality mentioned in this scripture this morning that this is corporate. This isn't just David or, or Morgan or you sitting there. This is all of us commanding all of us to do something together. And what we see is, is that worship is a corporate response to the divine presence or activity. And so it involves everyone. It's participatory. And worship is for God and to God. We sing to God. Yeah, we sing about God, but we're also singing to God. So Psalm 95, I'm going to read the first seven verses again. It says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. First seven verses, beautiful introduction, if you will, the, the way the psalm is written, it's an invitation to come, an invitation, but also an obligation. An invitation, he says, come, three times he says, come, verses one, verse two, verse six, is an invitation to come and participate. He, he's not just saying, hang back and watch, he's saying, come, participate, be a part of the experience. It's this idea that you actually have to decide to go with and do it. 
few weeks ago, I was uh, hanging out with my wife. We were driving down to Charleston to go see Hamilton, and I get a phone call, and we're in my car, we're on this date, and so like it's just, I have to get permission first. Can I answer? She says, yeah, go ahead and answer. So I answer, it's on speakerphone, and uh, my buddy's on the other end. He says, hey, man, do you want to go to the Braves game next week? I like the Braves. I grew up in Atlanta. You know, like, that sounds great, but in my mind, I'm also thinking six-hour drive, six-hour drive back, a whole weekend. Like, what are we talking about here? I said, give me some more details. He said, well, listen, you, you know, I'm in marketing and one of our big marketing accounts is with Bally's, who's one of the main sponsors of the Braves. We have some corporate seats. I, I said, say no more. I'm there. He's like, no, no, no. They're right behind home plate. Like every, food and drink is all included. Like they're comfort seats. Do you want to go? The invitation. The obligation was either me saying yes or no. Right? In that moment, I had to participate, either go with or not. And I said, yeah, yeah. At that time, my wife is sitting next to me. She, he's like, well, I'm thinking about inviting Alex and Josh. My wife's like, what about a double date? She gets into the speakerphone conversation. And he's like, well, I didn't think about that. And I was like, shh, you know, like, going to ruin this thing, right? So anyways, we're, he's like, all right, I'll let you know. So this is on, this is on a Wednesday. We, on Friday, I get a text. Not a call. I get a text. He said, hey, man, I only got two tickets. Uh, I'm going to take Josh instead. Don't get your friends like that, right? Find somebody different. So, no, I'm just kidding. So I'm like, whatever. It's fine. I completely understand. So he got two tickets. Good. I got my weekend back the next weekend, whatever. So the next week, Friday, we're hosting a golf tournament. And I'm pretty busy, and I get a phone call and a text within three minutes. Friends, if somebody gives you a phone call and a text within three minutes, there's probably something that needs to be attention to, right? Like, you text me, but if you need me, call me. That's kind of the process that I work with. So I call him back as soon as I have a chance, and he's like, hey, I have four tickets to the game tomorrow. Do you want to go? I said, what time are we leaving? Like, I was like, you were on the bad list. We're on the good list now. Like, what time are we going? Like, but think about this. The invitation to come involved me actually going. Nine hours in the car. Yes, it's only a six-hour drive. Traffic was a nightmare. Being there, sleeping on an air mattress in a hotel room, coming back. But it was to be into the presence. There were sacrifices to be made for me to come and participate, but the payoff was worth it. Right? And the psalmist in some way is saying, come, it'll cost you something in a sense of maybe your time or your emotion or some, you're saying no to something else. Come, but it'll be worth it. And it's the invitation, this idea of come, you have to participate. Worship is, is a participatory sport. You can't come in here and be a part of worship and not actually worship. That's not, you're not worshiping, right? You're just watching. And so worship is participating. So he's inviting us, oh, come, oh, let us come, let us do this. But then also in verse 2, he says, let us come into his presence. This is huge because in the Old Testament, what we see was that the people were actually expelled from the presence of God originally. In chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve having perfect fellowship with God, they commit sin, and what happens? They're expelled from the presence of God. And the story of redemption from that point on is bringing people back into the presence of God. And we wonder, how can I, a sinful human being, actually enter into the presence of God? In fact, that's what happened all throughout the Old Testament. There was certain laws and regulations that only one person would go in and on certain days meet with God and had certain rituals be taking place. It was a very serious thing to actually go into the presence of God. And here the psalmist is saying, hey, come on, let's, like, it's safe. Let's go into the presence of God. And for today, for us, the only way we enter in 
is because it's to the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the way into the presence of God. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It is not by our merit. It is by the merit of Jesus. We can actually enter in. 2009, I was interviewing for a job in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was driving up to Nashville, and I called my buddy. His name's Greg. I said, Greg, I'm coming up tonight. I got an interview tomorrow. You want to hang out tonight? He's like, hey, man, I'd love to hang out, but I'm actually going to the Country Music Awards tonight, and uh, so we can't hang out. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, hey, wait, wait. I'm on this thing called the standby list. Do you want to come and be seated in a sit-in list with me. I was like, what does that mean? He goes, let me explain something to you, Dave. When they do these award shows, uh, they only show you part of the arena where all the stars sit because the rest of the place is pretty much empty. There are a couple people that buy tickets to go to it, but the main thing they want to show you is that the seats are full. So when Zach Brown wins an award, they call Zach Brown Band up on stage. Well, somebody has to be in those seats the next time the camera pans because Zach Brown's going to get their award. They're going to go backstage. They're going to get some popcorn, maybe a piece of pizza. They're going to take pictures, and it'll be 15, 20 minutes before they get back to their seats. So they want those seats filled the next time the camera comes around. Do you want to do that? Yes, right? Invitation. Right? So I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So he's like, all right, look, I'm going to call my buddy. They put my name on a list. I'll put your name on the list. All you do is show up here. I'll meet you outside the thing, and we'll go in together. Sounds great. So I got sidetracked. I was talking to a friend who works at a church, and I got a text from him saying, hey, I'm already inside. I'm like, well, how am I going to get in? He's like, just go to the line. You, everything should be fine. Your name's on the list. Okay. So I get up there. I wait in line. I get up there. There's a table. Two ladies sitting at the table. They call me up, and I go to this lady, and I said, my name's David Neese. Greg Jorner's supposed to put me on the list. And she's like, there's no David Neese on the list. Well, that stinks. I just kind of, my whole night's right. So I kind of, all of a sudden she got distracted. So I kind of jumped over here and the lady's like, what's your name again? I was like, my name's Greg Joyner. Joyner, J-I-O-I-N-E-R. She could look, well, they were highlighting names. And it just so happened that Greg Joyner was unhighlighted on this one. He must have gone to this lady. She highlights it, says, come on in. I said, let's go. Right? And so I just walk straight by. I don't ask any questions. You put your head down, you walk. Don't judge me. You can do it later. Right? And so I go in, and within five minutes, I'm on the stage floor three rows from the front. Right? And I'm in this line. So they, literally, you just get in line. You go sit down. I got all the way up to the front, back, you know, like Tim McGraw. Hey, what's up, bud? You know, like we're doing this. The, the rule is you're not supposed to talk to them. They just kind of touch you on the shoulder, and you move out. Here's the point. It was an incredible experience. Right In the midst of, I actually enjoy country music, so it was absolutely enjoyable. But I didn't get in because my name was on the list. I didn't get in because I was smart or crafty. I didn't get in because I was wearing the right clothes. I didn't get in because of anything other than someone else's name covered me. Friends, you don't come into the presence of Jesus because of your behavior. You don't get to go into the presence of Jesus because you had a good week spiritually. You don't get to go into the presence of Jesus because you're better than someone else. You don't get to go into the presence of Jesus because of your absolute performance. You go into the presence of Jesus because Jesus performed. You go into the presence of God because Jesus did what you could not do and his grace covers you. And so the reality is, is that the rock of our salvation that we sing to took our place, took on death that we deserve, took on the wrath that we deserve, so we get the righteousness he deserves. 
And so the idea is when he's saying, come, come into his presence, it's something restored only by the cross, only by the rock of our salvation. And so we don't stand here saying, I want to come in, but my behavior is not acceptable. We, we don't come in to, you know, and say, I would like to come in, but my conscience won't let me. No, 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 we get to come in. The invitation is come, come and worship by the blood of Jesus. It's the invitation then that leads to the obligation, the command, let us. It's this idea of let us, it's this urging, this plurality, us together. It doesn't say let you, it says let us, let us do this together. Let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us worship and bow down. It's this command. And here's sometimes that we get in trouble. We get in trouble because sometimes we don't feel like worshiping when exactly what we need to do is worship. We... Sometimes we, we miss the idea that sometimes worship actually dictates to our heart what to feel, but we never get there because, yeah, we, I'd just rather not. We have, we have excuses, right? And our, our excuses go something like this, maybe lack of it. I just don't, I don't feel like it. I, I've had a bad week. I, I don't really like that song. I don't like the instruments they're using. I don't like the key they're singing in. I can't, I can't match that key. Uh, it's not my personality. We have all these excuses when in reality it's, it's a command. Let us worship. Because worship forms our heart. Worship forms our mind to the truths of God and reiterates them for us to understand and start to believe that this God is good. That this God is great. And it, as we sing truths, we're like, yeah, yeah, that's it. And we start to raise our voice, not because we're crazy, maybe we are, but it's because we start to believe, we start to trust more and more and more, and that our heart is formed and able to express joy. And we're worshiping to the Lord. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. That Lord there in the first verse is the Yahweh. It's the Hebrew Yahweh, Yahweh God who was... Uh, who showed himself in Exodus chapter 3 to, to Moses at the burning bush, the, the one who says, I am. I am that I am. The, he, he has been, he is, and he will always be. This is who we're worshiping, this God. He's not created. He's the self-existent Lord over all. And so as we sing and as we worship, we are singing to this God. So we have an invitation, a call to worship, which leads to the obligation to worship. It is command, right, for us to do it. But then the psalmist does something wonderful. He gives us reasons to worship. Because he doesn't expect us, to, expect us to check our mind at the door or to blindly follow this God. He, he gives us reasons why this God deserves to be worshipped. Listen to what he says. He gives us the emotional fuel, if you will. Number one, he says this, worship the Lord for his greatness. We see this in verses 3 through 5. He, he says, sing, right? Sing to the Lord. Sing a joyful noise, songs of praise to this God. Verse 3, for the Lord, for Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. He uses three different words for God there. He talks about Yahweh, he talks about El and Elohim. And what he's doing is basically saying, this big God, this God who we know his name is better than any other God, the little g God that's supposed to be. And what we have in the Hebrew poetry is almost he's saying, sing to this great God, and then he enhances it with the great king above all other gods. It's a way of saying, this is the truth, this is the biggest truth, that our God is greater. He's the creator God. And creation makes us feel small. I, don't, I, don't, I think it does for me, at least. Uh, I don't know anybody here who's ever gone to the Grand Canyon 
stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and been like, I'm really big. No, we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and we go, oh, that's a big gap. Or we yell, not because our voice is strong, but because the echoing shows the vastness of creation. That we can actually speak out and something speaks back to us. I don't know anything, but he just gone to the edge of a mountain and looked up the mountain and been like, I'm bigger than you, mountain. No, that's not what we do. We, we stand before creation, whether it's a rushing water or a mountain or whatever it is, and we think we are really small. If you want to test this theory today, just, just go down to the beach and stand on the edge of the beach and just hang out for a second and tell yourself, I'm really big. Friends, look to the left and look to the right. You're not that big. Creation is big. And what's amazing about this psalmist is he takes all of his pictures and he says that's all but a peanut in the hand of our great God. Because our God formed everything you see by his hands. It says this. Look what it says. It says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. God made everything you see. God made every tall mountain that you see. The tallest mountain on earth, Mount Everest, 29,000 feet tall. He made that. He rules over that. The deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, over 36,000 feet deep. If you took Everest, turned it upside down, put it in the trench, there would still be a mile gap. God rules over everything. Creation's but a Lego to God's building blocks in his hand. Who are we to think we're big? He's big. And so what author of the psalm is saying is, oh, come sing to this great God. He is worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy. He's pointing our attention to the greatness of who God is. And so we sing and we shout because our God is great. But then he also gives us the other reason. He says, oh, come, verse 6, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He takes something exterior, creation, talks about the greatness, but then he brings it into us personally and talks about relationship. Number two, we worship our God because of his goodness. Not only is he great, but we are his. We are his, and we bow down. Verse 6, it says, Oh, come, let us worship three times in different language. talks about bowing down, bowing down, being brought low. How can you not be brought low when this great king cares for you and you enter his presence? God, you are worthy of my worship. You are the great God. He is your God. He is our maker. Not only does he form that, he forms us. He sustains us. Your body is beating right now because of the goodness of God. The intricacies of how we work and everything is because we have a great God. And then it says this, he is our God. And then it goes to this idea of relationship. We are his people in his pasture. We are the sheep. He's the shepherd. It speaks of this relationship. In Psalm 23, he talks about how he's the good shepherd, right? And Jesus claims to be the shepherd. The idea is this, is that a shepherd tends and cares and provides and leads and protects the sheep. 
to get to the sheep. If you're his sheep, they have to go through the shepherd him. He protects you. He guards you. That means this, that no matter what happens in your life, to get to you, they have to go through Jesus. He's good. He is good. And so what the author is doing is saying, we can trust him. Fight off unbelief. No matter what's happening, what bad things may happen in your life, what terrible things come your way, we still believe that he is trustworthy. We still believe that he is to be followed. We still believe, no matter what everything else says, that he is good and cares for us. And so we worship and we form our hearts to him. He is our shepherd. And so these first verses give us this idea of worshiping the king for his glory, but it's also for our sanctification and for our benefit. And then the psalmist gives us this whiplash moment, if you will. I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident and gotten whiplash. The idea is is that you didn't see something coming and somebody jacked you from behind, right? And so I remember as a kid driving across the country, driving up into Alaska. We grew up in Georgia, so that's a kind of a long drive for those of you who know any kind of geography. And uh, we're sitting, driving on the road. All of a sudden, we spot a bear, two bears, and there's three bears climbing some trees. And so we, my dad just stops the truck, van we're in, and we're looking over. And all of a sudden, it's just boom, right from behind. Any other moment, you're like, who just hit our car, right? Like whiplash moment, head hits the back of the window. Everything's peaceful, pointing attention on beauty around us. And all of a sudden, it's just this thing. Well, it happened to be my grandparents coming from behind, not saying that we had stopped in the middle of the road. Why would you stop in the middle of the road, right? And so you have two cars caravanning together that now have to go to the shop and you're hanging out, right? Like this idea of like, well, there's consequences to the whiplash moment. The psalmist gives us kind of a whiplash moment where the sense of like pointing our attention to who God is, pointing our attention to his goodness, to his greatness, and then he gives us this warning out of nowhere. Because the reality is, it's like, these are good things, right? These are great things. But then he changes the entire scope of the psalm with one word, and if we don't pay attention, we can be in trouble. And everything changes at the end of verse 7 where it says, today. We have this call to worship, and then there's this consequential warning starting in verse 7. 7b says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts at Meribah, as at Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in the heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Everything changes with the word today. The good thing about today is every day you're at, that's today. Which means this, like even though this psalm was written hundreds, thousands of years ago, today means today for us. And the warning is today, do not harden your heart. And the warning tomorrow will be today, do not harden your heart. And the warning on Tuesday will be today, do not harden your heart. And the psalmist is expressing this idea that God is worthy to be worshipped, but if you do not worship, you actually take responsibility for your heart becoming hard. He says today, 
And he tells the story, he references a story that they would know well about, but also that we should as well. It's all through scripture. And what he's referencing is this idea of Masa and Meribah, two places, actually one. One means quarreling. One, just this idea that ultimately the people tested God. So they're quarreling and they're testing God. And the test goes like this. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. God sees them, raises up Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let the people go. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, plague comes. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, plague comes. Finally, Pharaoh gets enough. God, God demolishes a whole group of people, the firstborn because of the Passover, the blood of the Passover. And ultimately what we see is that God's people are on this journey. They get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. The people go through. God has provided for these people miracle after miracle after miracle. And they get out there and all of a sudden they start to question and quarrel, not only with God, but with the people of God, saying God brought us out here to die in the wilderness. God hasn't provided this. God hasn't done this. And God hasn't done this. And then also when it's time to go in the promised land, they raise up spies. They go into the promised land, the place that they're supposed to go take. God has promised them that God has brought them here to this moment. God has done everything he said he's going to do. They go into the promised land. They scout it out. They come back and all but two of them go, we can't do this. We will die. There's no chance that we survive. We can't do it. The other two are like, we're going in. God has promised us this land. And it's this spot where it happens where God tells that generation, because of your unbelief, you will not enter into the promised land. And for 40 years, they wandered because of their unbelief. The consequence of not believing the goodness of God, the consequence of not believing the word of God, the consequence of not believing the greatness of God was that a whole generation of people died in the wilderness, not inheriting what God had already promised. And so what the author of Psalms is doing is saying, do not be like them. They saw God move. They saw his miracles They saw everything, and yet they disbelieved. In fact, they were supposed to go to become worshipers. One thing that was always said when they went to Pharaoh was, let my people go so that they may worship me. God's desire is for worshipers. Worshiping God helps believe that God is good. Worshiping God helps bring praise to God. It expands his glory on the earth. And what we see is these people saw them, and he says, do not be like them. He even connects it. He says, your fathers. A lot of times we're like, oh, well, I'm, that's not me. Like, that's too, f-. guess what? They're part of your family tree. And if these people are capable of it, you're capable of it. The author of Hebrews actually picks this up, the same thing up and quotes it. It's probably the, the biggest quotation in all the New Testament of an Old Testament passage in Hebrews chapter three and chapter four. He specifically quotes text after text after text, and sometimes the same text, referencing this psalm specifically in regard to Christians who are struggling in their belief. The author of Hebrews writes to a group of Jewish Christians who are trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus in a world that is telling me not to believe, in a world that is coming at me with persecution, in a world that is giving me every alternative. The author of Hebrews points to Jesus and says, believe Jesus. And he shows in every chapter that Jesus is more supreme than everything else. And we get to chapter three and what we see is, is that he references this text to specifically say that the people missed Jesus because of their unbelief. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like them because the whole point of them getting to the promised land was resting in the presence 
of God. Friends, are you restless this morning? The answer is not more work. Is your mind restless? Is your body restless? The only answer is resting in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, if you don't worship, you will never rest. Because Jesus is the full and final rest. God meets your needs, maybe just not the way you want him to or think that they should look like. Today, if you hear his voice, take responsibility in the process and do not harden your heart. It says today, if you hear this, fathers, put me to the test. Listen to the words, how God described for 40 years I loathe that generation. That's a strong, passionate word. God is passionate about you and your heart being for him and not being hardened. And how do I know that? Verse 11, he does something about it. Therefore, God said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Who was he saying that? He was saying that to people who were around the things of God, but not participating in the activity of God. Friends, it is possible for you to come in week after week after week and be around people who are participating in the worship of God and never worship God yourself. Don't be like that. That's, that's what he's saying. Don't miss it. God is for you. But God's wrath is also 100% true. His wrath in verse 11 was against people who claimed to worship him, people who claimed lip service to him, but didn't trust him. Unbelief is dangerous and perilous. And what the psalmist would say to us is worship helps prevent unbelief. So how do you worship? Do you sing? Yeah, you should sing. Should you fall down? Yeah, yeah, you should fall down at times before our great God. You should enter into his presence daily. You, you should remind yourself. You should remind yourself of who he is and, and how good he is. It is possible that we can walk out of here on a weekly basis and live lives that show unbelief in his word. We, we don't even pick up his word or we don't trust his word. Unbelief and untrusting of Jesus where Jesus says to do this or the spirit of God leads us one way and we completely disobey and go the other way. Or maybe we're unresponsive to the gospel of grace where we think that we have to perform or we have to do something to this level for God to even hear us. We can do that and you'll come back in here and you will not be able to manufacture worship because that's not how worship works. Worship is about responding as we believe in the word of God. As we read it, as we soak it up, as we as trust the words of Jesus and trust his goodness and his greatness. It's as we hear the gospel of grace wash over us and encourage us. As we, as we then shower that to other people where we extend grace, we extend forgiveness. And then you come back in here on Sunday and the natural overflow of that is worship. And even in that moment, if you don't feel like it, we still let us sing together. We command to do it together because that's what continues to form our hearts. We worship the king. The author of Hebrews actually speaks about this as well in verse three, I mean, it's chapter three, verse 12. Right after he's quoted it, he, he basically says, take care, as in pay attention to do this. Because it's that important. And then the next verse, he says this, exhort one another as long as it's today. That we bear responsibility as a community to say, come, 
Let's do this together. Come, let's, let's sing. Let's, let's praise our King. Come and do this because I know this for my life. I need grace and mercy and love and peace that only Jesus offers. I, I know this for my life. I need someone to take my place because I don't do it right all the time. And Jesus has done that. I need someone to change me from the inside out. And God does that. I, I need Jesus. And so we run to Jesus as a church. We, we come and we sing and we worship because worship fuels belief. But when we don't worship, be warned of unbelief. The consequences could be exactly what the psalmist describes here. And so the natural response is you have to decide, do you worship for his glory, for your good, or do you harden your heart and walk further and further and further away from the greatness of this king? Let's pray together. God, we desire to worship you. God, there's times where we don't always know what that looks like. We don't always feel like doing it. But God, we want to be obedient to the commands of Scripture. We want to come and we, we want to enter your presence, not because of our good things, but because of Jesus and his great salvation. And so God, as we sing, we sing to the rock of our salvation. We lift high the name of Jesus, not only for our sake to hear it, for others to believe it, but also, God, because he is worthy of it. And so, God, I pray that in each person here today that you would form in them a desire to worship and that our response would be one of obedience. God, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would be, not be a people who speak of Jesus on our lips, but our hearts are far from him. But God, that we would be a people that participate in the forming of belief as we worship your great name. And so God, we pray that you would be glorified now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.